I was going to open up this episode with a bodybuilding joke, so I went to Google and I just typed in bodybuilding jokes, and uh, it was just a picture of me. Like, how uncool and unfair is that? So, whatever. Let's get to it. And now, coming at you from the Five Star Physique Studio in Knoxville, Tennessee, this is The Drop Set. With your host, Darren Starr. Man, I'm tired. I'm tired today. You know, there's a uh, there's an analogy I like to make a lot with clients, um, and it has to do typically with like. You know, if somebody's in a cut, somebody's in a deficit, and this this applies mostly to non-competitors, lifestyle clients, um, just because, you know, when, when you're getting ready for a show, um, there's a certain level of urgency applied to it. Like, we're 13 weeks out, we're 11 weeks out, we're six weeks out. Like, there's not a lot of time for, for bad weeks or backsliding or anything like that. With lifestyle clients, a lot of the times, like, we take a, a step back, you know, somebody is trying to get their routine dialed in, we're struggling with adherence, et cetera. And I always make the analogy, like, I don't want to, you know, lose a pound twice, like the same pound. Like, I don't want to get down to this number, then go back up and then have to lose that pound again. I'm not talking about like water retention, but like we're working, 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 cool. Then we have a couple of bad weeks. Now we're up four pounds. That's four pounds we have to drop again. So it's like, what a pain in the ass. And I always make the comparison that it's like, you know, before there was autosave in Word, you're typing, 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 typing. Word crashes on you, as it often does, and you pull a document back up, and you just have to type the whole thing again. You're like, motherfucker. You know, the the kick is, once you've typed it once, it's easier to type it a second time. Once you've dropped a pound, it's easier to drop it the second time. It's just a pain in the ass to have to do it again when you've already done it, right? So this applies to me in that um, I recorded a video for YouTube last week. It was Technique Critique Episode 2, where I break down uh, form videos from clients. Um, I recorded that video last week, um, shot it. It was 25 minutes raw, probably edit that down to about 18 minutes or so. Um, And I went to edit it, and the audio was totally unusable. Um, I did not realize at the time, because I didn't have headphones on as I was recording it, but when I was playing the videos back, um, the volume from the video clips from the gym was full blast and drowning out everything I was trying to say over top of it. And I can't separate the two in post-production. So, um, what a pain in my ass. Oh my God. So I'm going to, today was going to be the day where I sat down and re-recorded that, but instead I'm here, uh, because, I don't want to drop that pound again. I've already dropped it once. I don't want to drop it again. So I'm procrastinating. So we get a podcast episode instead. Now, if, if things are, if there's poetic justice in the world, once I get to about minute 38 on this, my recording program will crash and then I will have to uh, start this over again, at which point I will just go to bed and call it a week. So, um, welcome to the drop set. This is episode 238. Darren Starr here as usual. Um, do you know this podcast has been going on since 2016, 2016? Here's the problem that I have with that. Once I had a handful of episodes up like 10 to 15 episodes, I started getting a certain number of listeners. I'm still at that same number of listeners per episode now, like 230 episodes later than I was then. That is, uh, I'm doing something wrong here. I don't know what it is, but enough about me. 
well, I don't know about that. There might be some more about me. Enough about that. Enough about my whining here. Nobody needs, nobody wants to listen to that. Um, I feel better whining. So, um, but something tells me it's not going to make for the most compelling show. So maybe we move on. Let's, uh, let's get on to today's guest. Today's guest is a full-time bodybuilding coach. He is, well, it's me. Okay. Sorry. I am today's guest. Yeah, I was going to fake a whole intro for myself, but I'm like, that's just too much of a bait and switch. People are getting their hopes up. They're like, oh, a guest? It wasn't even in the show notes. Wow, who's the guest? Oh, it's just that asshole again. Sorry. So uh, a few things I wanted to cover here. Um, we do have a uh, a voicemail. Um, I did see that it was from my client, Michelle, who called in the last time as well. And I was told that um, her uh, call did was difficult to hear. So um, I will try and make sure that we address that here but uh see if we can get it a little bit more on the up and up so we'll listen to that shortly here and then a few topics that i want to cover why don't we actually just start with michelle so i'm gonna here's the thing so um rename that file i'm just gonna drop it in here and see if i can like kind of finagle this in such a way that this is going to work well. Maybe I'll have to edit this. I don't know. So I'm going to drop it in here. Oh, I got to get the headphones on as well. Otherwise, I won't be able to hear it. That would be stupid. Um, okay, I think it should be about ready to go. Let me just see. I don't know how loud this is. So I might, you know, there might be some editing that has to happen here because I don't know if this is going to work. But here is Michelle. Let's go. Oh, shit. She's muted. Hold on. Let me try that again. Unmute. Oh, man. This is going to be a shit show in editing. I can promise you that. Hi, Darren. It's Michelle here, your client in Calgary. And I was thinking of two more questions for you. So the first one is the use of peptides for muscle gain, recovery, and fat loss. And I've, I've seen it pop up a lot on social media, and I'm curious on your thoughts and how they compare to traditional just diet and training or anabolic steroid use. You know, are they snake oil, or is there some basis to their use? So that's my first question. The second question has to do with training deloads. How do you program them in? What does it look like? Some people just take a few days off and then hit it again. Some do a week of active rest, and some continue at the gym, but with half the reps and sets and weights. So I'm wondering sort of your thoughts on that as well, and how do you program that in into your style of training? That's it. Thanks so much. Bye. Awesome. Cool. So, um, good questions there. So I didn't listen to this before, so I, I kind of go into this. It's, it's kind of a format, like a call-in show, which is how I like it, where I don't know what anybody's going to ask. Like, I just saw that she left a message. It was Michelle. She, she, we checked in today and she said, and I left a message. I'm like, I know I got it already. Um, but I didn't have any idea what it was until I played it right then. So I took some notes here, peptides. I have some thoughts there, deload some thoughts there as well. So, um, peptides, honestly, I'm not a big fan just because the, the place that you source those from, I don't really consider them to be the most trustworthy in the world. Like if you get them from like, you know, a clinic that sells them, that's one thing. If you buy them gray market through like, you know, uh, King Peptides, Amino Asylum, the thing is like it very well could be snake oil because a lot of peptides just have such a subtle impact. 
um, it's like they can just sell you nothing and get away with it. Un- versus like, you know, if you buy clenbuterol from a place like that, like clenbuterol has a very obvious impact when you take it. Like you will feel it. Okay. So you can't sell fake clenbuterol. Just like, you know, testosterone is not faked just because it's very easy to tell via blood work if it's legit or not. Now they might underdose it because you can always, you know, if I was a shady guy providing black market anabolics, um, I could always just underdose my testosterone testosterone and uh just if somebody calls me out on lab work just like hey you must have you must have you know poor receptor uptake sorry probably just need a higher dose more money for me um one thing that they they do do just because i don't think that people really track this very carefully is you know when you get a 10 milliliter vial of something there's usually nine milliliters of stuff in there so uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's how they get you there. Um, so peptides, I mean, honestly, it depends on what peptides we're talking about. Something like, um, I always get the name on it. It's, it's BPC or BCP. I always get it uh, backwards. I don't know which one it is. 157, um, which has some properties where it can be site injected and it can help with uh, like soft tissue repair, like tendon, ligament damage in a, in a specific area. That uh, has enough anecdotal evidence behind it that seems trustworthy that even if it's not super super legit like i feel like the placebo effect on that is powerful enough that i would recommend something like that um because honestly if you're dealing with a pain thing it's not like oh am i gaining more muscle from this i think i am when you're not it's like if you're experiencing less pain like just keep in mind the placebo effect is a very real thing that I mean, that's it's the power of the human brain to influence how the body performs. So, um, and for something like pain reduction, like you know, you, you take an ibuprofen, you'll feel better. Um, well, was your pain related to inflammation? If not, then it's probably not helping. But the placebo effect from that is powerful enough. Like that's cool. I like that. Um, if you're looking at like CJC, ipamorelin, you know, stuff like that, I just find a very, very uh, low degree of evidence to support that they are worth anything, especially if the source is anything other than a hundred percent reliable. Um, and the, the other issue there is one of cost. So if you do get, do get those from actual clinics and I've talked with plenty of clients who they go in for TRT and then they try to upsell them with these, like, I really believe that those things exist primarily as a money-making thing for clinics. Um, just because they are more, they're almost always more expensive than the actual testosterone that somebody is being prescribed from that clinic um, while doing much, much less overall, if anything noticeable. Um, And a lot of them are are recommended for, you know, reasons that are not helpful. Like some peptides are um, designed to help promote, uh, you know, better sleep. Um, I am the wrong person to try to back up something like that or criticize it for not working um, simply because I always sleep like a four-year-old. Do four-year-olds sleep well? What's an age? I don't have kids. Like, I sleep like a dog, you know, we know dogs can sleep through, they sleep 16 hours a day. Like I could do that. Yeah. So I always sleep well. So taking something that's supposed to improve your sleep, I'm like, yeah, I'm a bad test case for that. I don't know, maybe whatever. Um, I just, I I have not had compelling evidence. Uh, Anecdotally, I've not read anything that really supports that they are, are worth anything, especially if they're coming at a more elevated cost than something that we know really, really makes a difference. Right. So, um, yeah, how does it compare to diet and training and, and just regular, more conventional anabolics? 
um, I would say it is very easily last on the list. Um, I might even, I mean, for most people, I don't even consider putting it on the list just because we've got bigger fish to fry. Like, let's just continue to tweak the diet a little bit. Let's focus on our training intensity. Save your money because for the cost associated, it certainly doesn't bring anything to the value that's commensurate to that price tag. So, um, as far as deloads, how to program, what do they look like? The first thing here is determining, like, do you need a deload? That's the first question. Um, how do you know when you need a deload? For me, you know, the, the conventional thing is when you um, when you stop progressing and your training stops improving, then you deload. Well, I would argue like, no, that's probably, you know, progressive overload has a, a natural ceiling. You just can't continue to keep increasing on your lifts indefinitely till the end of time. At some point, you just need to do your training split, change all the variables, swap out some exercises, um, adjust the construction of the workouts. Uh, and, and then kind of, you know, give progressive overload a little bit of a reset. So I don't find like lack of progression to be something that is a good indicator that we need a deload for me. Um, the thing that I would say is probably, and clearly like you got to know your strengths and know your weaknesses. And for me, I've been doing this long enough. I know what mine is and I know I'm not unique in this. I know this is a common one as well. A lot of people will get to a point where it's like, God, I can't wait to train can't wait to train can't wait to train and that gradually changes over time to fuck i have to go to the gym when it gets to fuck i have to go to the gym that's how you know you're overdue for a deload so that's basically i mean you know you want to avoid overtraining that is overtraining it's not a physical response it's more of a mental thing i think for most people certainly is for me um sometimes there can be some performance things like if somebody has started a new split they're two weeks into it and they're they're already like hitting a wall um and performance is is not improving week to week i would expect them to but also also i think um if asked and i, I ask this of clients a lot um i'll be like you know how wh what are your thoughts on training like how jazzed are you to go to the gym and invariably they're like well it's fine like i think people don't often want to cop to the fact that like fuck i i'd rather you know pull a fingernail out with pliers and go to the gym today you know you'll get to that point you do this long enough you're going to get to that point and uh at that point yeah you're you're way overdue for a deload that's that's the end of the story right there um so the the first thing of course is knowing when it's time to do it and i think if you get to that point you're overdue for sure so um how to program and what do they look like that can also be different for everybody um for me um I have a lot of mental fatigue. So, um, like it, it th that's the thing. It can be mental fatigue. It can be physical fatigue. It can also like other life factors can influence this as well. Like if you're just stressed in general about a lot of stuff, if you're not sleeping well, um, your need for a deload might be accelerated. It might come, come along faster than you think. Basically you're, you're, you know, it, it all comes down to my, my analogy with the stress balloon or the stress bucket where, you know, there's good stress and there's bad stress, but eventually the balloon's going to pop or the bucket's going to overflow. All the good and the bad stress goes into that same balloon or that same bucket. I should just pick one of those for this analogy. Same bucket. How about that? Um, it all goes into the same bucket. So the training stress that you accumulate from going to the gym, that's good stress. We need that for your body to change. Without that, there is no growth. Your tissue retention at a deficit will be very poor. Um, so that's good. And that's going to fill up some space in the bucket, right? And your bucket's only so big. So if you're throwing a bunch of other crap in there, work stuff, family stuff, financial stuff, whatever, you know, um, then that bucket overflows and 
So what you need to do is make sure that the other stuff is well managed, but also sometimes you need to kind of poke a little hole in the bottom of the bucket and drain something out. And sometimes what you can do is like, well, let me eliminate training stress for a week. Right. Um, and so that can help kind of reset things. Now, still, you're, you're going to as soon as you get back into the gym, you're going to start getting putting that good stress back into the bucket. So um, it's going to overflow again, you know, give it a week and you'll probably be right back to where you were. So the other thing is when you deload, um, the thing is, how do you use the time when you're not in the gym? And for me, what I always advocate doing is take that extra, you know, for a lot of people, it can be two hours when you think about like, Oh, got to get my pre-workout meal ready. I got to get ready for the gym. I got to drive to the gym. I got to work out. Maybe you're doing cardio afterwards and then, you know, drive home, post-workout meal, et cetera, all this. I mean, that's, that's a lot of time. That could very easily be two hours. So what if you just eliminate that two-hour block and use that to focus on emptying other things out of your stress bucket? So we're using that time strategically or just, you know, take a freaking nap. You know, that that's good too. Um, so utilize that deload time in a positive way so that it's still constructive, productive time. Think about what is dragging you down the most. What's the thing that you need to do the most? And it might just be like, yeah, I need a nap more than I need oxygen at this point. Cool. Take your nap. That's me, by the way. I'm talking about myself here. Um, so like I said, physical stress and fatigue and also mental stress and fatigue. Um, for me... Um, uh, I might be a little unique in this um, just because, you know, of what I do. I'm not claiming that I'm the only one that, that experiences this, but I get so mentally exhausted going to the gym and seeing the same people do the same stupid shit every day. So for me, a deload, like the biggest gift is not having to go to the gym and look at those people for a week. Like everybody talks about like, oh, I love my gym family. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't talk to anybody in the gym. They're all a bunch of strangers to me. I'm antisocial. I get it. It's me. Okay. I know it's me. I'm fully aware it's me. You can say, Darren, I think you have a little personality disorder. I think you've got some issues. I know. Okay. I'm well aware of that. All right. So you're not telling me anything I don't already know. Um, but it's like, I just need a break from seeing these people. Like today there's this guy and you know, he, every exercise he does, everything I, I watched him around at this thing. Like I can't shut this part of my brain off and I wish that I could. Um, but it's like, when, when you look at exercise technique for a living, it's like you're in the gym. You can't help but like dumb, dumb. Hey, that's pretty good form over there. What is that? I don't even think that's an exercise. Like it, it, I can't shut that part of my brain off. I wish I could. I got to learn how to do that just because it really, really drags me down. Um, this one guy, every single exercise he does, he does it kneeling on a boat, on a, on a stability ball everything he's in the cables he's kneeling on a stability ball today oh my god he was kneeling on a stability ball doing single arm lateral raises alternating passing the dumbbell from one hand to the other in between reps it's like what in the holy fuck are you doing oh my god and i tell you what this guy looks like he does every exercise kneeling on a stability ball like exactly what you'd expect looks like he's never been in the gym a day in his life <laughs> because he is, I, I've never seen him do a single productive exercise ever. He's in there every day doing this stuff. I need a break from him on my deload week, which is a long way, Michelle, of saying, um, I take full rest days. I don't go to the gym. I'm not doing active rest. No, I might take a slightly longer walk around the neighborhood in those days. Um, but that's it. Like I'm not going anywhere near the gym. I need a break from the gym for me also like gym. I mean, it's, it's, you know, 
it, it is part of what I do, like for prep reasons, et cetera, and for my own benefit. But it is also a place where you know work happens. I'm not working in the gym, but it is so closely related to my job, my career. It's like it, it feels like work. And so taking a week off from the gym is almost like a little mini vacation um, in a way. I still have actual work work to do during those days, but that's how I approach it. I need, desperately need that time completely away from the gym when I'm doing a deload week like I did the week of Thanksgiving, which was much needed. So did that do the trick? Um, TBD. Um, definitely things are better now than they were before. I've had a few good workouts. I did legs today. I give myself a six and a half, seven out of 10 for my workout today. It's like, eh, I'm having some issues doing compound movements on leg days. I won't get into it now. It's a discussion for another day. So I'm, I'm largely just stuck with isolation stuff on machines um, and just trying to plug some holes there. So everything felt good. It just didn't feel like my output was super high just because I didn't do a single compound exercise and it feels kind of lame, you know, so... Um, but th that's what I do. I don't find that there's a lot of value in active recovery. Um, like, I'm not sure what that means necessarily. Like, uh, it's like active rest. What does that mean? So like, if you're going to go and like do some stretching or something like that, absolutely. Hell yeah. You should do that anyway, for sure. Um, if a deload week is the only time you work that stuff in, you're going to be like me and you don't want to be like me. So yeah, a little bit of, of stretching work for sure. Like I said, like I'm not doing a lot of extra cardio on those days, but I might take a slightly longer walk with my dogs. So uh, or dog or well, Taz is the only one that's going to want that. Derby's like longer walk. No, I'm breaking this leash and I'm running back home on my own. See ya. I'll open the door for myself when I get there. Um, so maybe a little bit of a longer walk, but that's about it. Lower intensity. I I don't, I, I find that usually with, um, with somebody who's working hard enough to where they need a deload, um, the trick is, can you dial that intensity back to 70% and do that successfully? Um, I think a lot of people are in the gym and they just feel like if they're in there, they're like, okay, 70%. And then they end up not pulling back. They maybe drop volume a little bit. It's not really a deload. Not, not in the way that most people need at that point. So you've got to listen to your body and figure out like, what do you actually need? And in most cases you, you need like a, a legit break for sure. So I find that that's the most productive way to do it. Um, maybe it's not a full week. Maybe it's three days. Maybe it's four or five days. Um, like my last deload was five days. I think that was fair. Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, back on Saturday. Um, would I have benefited more from a week? Well, it wouldn't hurt. It's not like if you take seven days off versus five, oh, that's the point where you're going to start dropping a whole bunch of muscle. Now, we've talked about that before. Atrophy takes time. So you're not taking a, uh, planning a deload or a week off and talking yourself out of it because you're going to lose tissue. That is just not understanding how the human body works. So that should not be a concern. That should not factor into your thinking. What should factor into your thinking is, do I need this? Am I going to benefit from this? And that's the end of the discussion. Not like, well, what's going to happen? No. Nothing's, nothing bad is going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to take a break. You're going to come back and you're going to train better than you were before the break. That's what's going to happen. Um, your physique isn't taking a huge backward step or anything like that. You're going to feel flat. You're going to feel kind of fat while you're not loading up with glycogen throughout the week. That's okay. You'll, you'll survive. So a couple of good questions there. I like that. I like that a lot. So um, let's see. Um, I've got a hard out here in 23 minutes. Where are we at right now in time? It's 20, that's, that's about right. Okay, cool. So let's see what else we can cover here. Um, there is, uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about here, which is, um, a battle between two competing ideas. And those ideas are what is optimal and what is practical. So 
I've actually seen this, uh, seen people refer to uh, this online um, kind of talking trash on the idea of doing what's optimal. They say, oh, that's just what the optimal bros say. Like, why does everything have to be a thing like this? And can we just, as an aside, just discuss very briefly, like, how toxic fitness and bodybuilding social media has become, like, more so recently than ever before. Like, it really makes me want to have nothing to do with it. And I'm talking about not really the posts so much, but the comments on these posts. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I had a comment on one of my YouTube videos um, a couple days ago. And it was the one where I did the, I did a review, a video review on the Wolfpack um, meal prep bag. And this comment was like, I came here looking for a review on a backpack. And instead, I see a guy in a tank top talking about something else. And it's like, we get it. You're in shape, dude. This was worthless. I'm like, have you ever seen a goddamn bodybuilding video in your life, motherfucker? Like, if you're offended by seeing some dude in a tank top, like you got some issues, man. Like that's on you. That ain't on me. Shut the fuck up. Take your shine box. Go home. You know, I mean, good Lord. I just, I can't with these people. Eventually I know like, here's the thing. Like I have such a small online presence that when I get a comment like that, like it really, it still really bothers me. And I, I, eventually like with enough of that, you just don't even give a shit anymore. But now I'm like, yeah, I want to go. I want to hunt down every one of these people and just punch them in the throat. Like, find something better to do with your time. Jeez, Louise. Not to mention, like, that video has been one of my most successful. Like, it has had a really good. I mean, it's a. If I can toot my own horn, it's a pretty good review. So I think he like watched the first ten seconds of it, and which was just the intro where I talk about exactly what I'm going to be talking about. And then he's like, uh, this isn't a review. I'm 10 seconds in and I don't have a decision made yet. So I don't know what the fuck is wrong with people. Anyway, it's just so toxic. That's one example. Just, you know, go on the uh, social media of like any specifically like male bodybuilder and just read the comments on the posts. I dare you. And then go take a shower afterwards because you're going to want one. It's just nasty. It's absolutely nasty. Um, so anyway, <laughs> tangent going back what's optimal versus what's practical so I always like to lean in to the discussion on what's optimal because I think you need to start there whether we're talking about a dietary setup whether we're talking about exercise selection whether we're talking about just general um, programming etc you got to know what's optimal so that if you're going to do something else you know how that thing that's less optimal is deficient and then use that deficiency intelligently um, so for example um, and th this is you know there are not universal truths on this but this is an opinion that I hold um, well, first of all, the facts. Um, one thing that really determines how good an exercise is, is the stimulus to fatigue ratio, right? So this is like, how much do you feel it working in the muscle versus how much fatigue it generates? Um, and so the stimulus part of that can be very different for a lot of people. Like for me, the one exercise any body part, like if you said, hey, what's one exercise where if you're like, I want to get a pump in some muscle group in one set, how can you do it? Straight arm pull down. That's it. That has the highest stimulus for me of any exercise for any muscle group. That is my one desert island exercise. Straight arm pull down. Um, other people, they find that exercise to be worthless because of a proprioception issue. They don't have the mind-muscle connection for it. Um, for me, 
And, and some people, they just, yeah, they don't like it. Yeah. So, and because they don't like it, it kind of biases them against feeling the proper stimulus. So you kind of learn to love it. Like I didn't always love it, but now it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Like that is the one. So every back day that I do starts with that because it's like, you know, your leadoff hitter in the first inning starts with a home run. That's a great way to start the game. Kind of sets the tone for the rest of the hitters in the lineup. That's what I do. I want to start off a back workout with a big victory, Get a, uh, do four sets of that, and I feel like I've had a productive workout. I've done one exercise, but the lats are so pumped, it feels like psh, I could walk out of here right now and be okay with this, so let's now do the rest of the workout. Like That's a pretty good way to start. Not everybody feels that way. So you got to understand like there is some variability in this. Um, and so what you can do is know like, well, what are the exercises that are a little bit more biased towards like a, a higher stimulus to fatigue ratio? Something like um, what? I'm trying to think of a, a less controversial example before I get to the real, the real meat and potatoes that's going to set some people's hair on fire. Um, Okay, so here's one. I see people doing, um, like they'll do bicep curls at a lat pull-down station, like using the lat pull-down bar seated, but instead of pulling it down, you do a supinated grip and you do a bicep curl to your forehead. Okay, is that a valid exercise? Yes. Does it have a really good stimulus? No. I mean, it's okay, right? But generally speaking, people are going to have a tougher time connecting with that than just doing like a simple standing cable curl, right? So you, you pick the things that are going to be easier for more people to connect with if you're trying to write programming. If you're doing your own programming, experiment. Like you can figure out what your best stimulus exercises are and kind of lean heavily in towards those and try to bring other exercises into that family. So improve your skill set so that, you know, more and more things over time come into that high stimulus family. So the thing that I think is a very poor stimulus to fatigue ratio exercise is a squat. Um, and so I don't, I don't do regular squats. I'll do a hack squat. I will do a pendulum squat, but like barbell squats, very poor stimulus to fatigue ratio. First of all, nothing generates more fatigue for me than a squat. Like regardless of how much weight I have on that bar at the end of that set, it feels like I've just done 15 minutes of cardio. Um, and it's, so that's a high amount of fatigue. I also feel like what, what, what is getting most stimulated when I do a squat? Well, it's my heart <laughs> and not because I have so much love and affection for squats. No, my heart rate goes through the roof. And so it's going to give out before my quads, before my glutes or anything like that. I just, for me, the proprioception on that, and this is because it is a complex compound muscle group that uses, you know, four different muscle groups. You got quads, glutes, adductors, hamstrings, you got a lot going on in here, right? And it's just, it's. It's there's a lot of divide and conquer that has to happen, uh, and then combining of forces, you've got to really make the synergy work. And it's just like, oh my god, I just, it's one of those things that has never really clicked well for me. Just a free weight barbell squat is a very poor stimulus exercise for me, but it's a very high fatigue exercise for me. Ergo, I'm not doing it. Um, a hack squat, I can tweak that in such a way, like, yeah, there's a good cardio response on that, but man. I'm getting a ridiculous quad pump on that. I feel like I can move some reasonable weight with really controlled form and feel good about that. So um, that for me is a much better stimulus to fatigue ratio. So if I'm picking compound exercises, I'm choosing between those two. There you go. So that's about knowing what is optimal, like how to determine that for yourself. Determine, like look at the mechanics of an exercise. Like, you know, you can do... Um, uh, lat pull down in any number of ways. Like, let's think about how wide the grip is there. Well, 
there's a certain grip width that's optimal. It is just more mechanically leveraged to get your lat full, the, to, to get all of your lat activated. And that is a little wider than shoulder width. So you see all these people doing these lat pull downs where they're grabbing the bar as wide as they can. I'm talking about like women who are five foot two grabbing a pretty good size pull down bar at max width. Like their range of motion is ridiculously short just because they don't have the wingspan to really go through a proper range of motion. You get a great stretch, you can't get the lat anything even close to a shortened position. It helps to understand what's optimal here. So then you can understand like, okay, that is not the best way to execute a lat pull down. It's a good way to activate your teres major, but it's not the best way to active to activate your lat for a lat pull down. And if that's what we're calling the exercise, that's what we want. So you, you narrow that grip up a good bit. You're going to get way more range of motion out of it. And suddenly boom, much more optimal. So knowing what's optimal really helps. And then we come to the um, counter argument here. Okay, well, what's practical? And when we're talking about workouts, this can be as simple as, well, this is optimal, but it's taken. So what else can I do that's practical? Like I can't get over there to do that because there's, you know, four broccoli headed teenagers standing around that machine and they're going to be there for 35 minutes. So what can I do? Um, they're wearing Crocs, by the way, also. God, I'm such an old man. When did this happen? When did I turn into such an old man? Like, this is embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for myself right now. But not so embarrassed that I'm going to go and edit that out. I stand by it. I, I, I am, I am what, what's that movie? I'm Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. Is that the movie where he's like, get off my lawn, but with a shotgun? Like, that, I'm, I'm like that. Uh, no, I'm not going to take a shotgun into the gym. I'm not. Uh... Yeah, I stand by that. I stand by that remark. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> God, people are calling the FBI on me right now. Um, so, yeah, so sometimes you have to settle for what's practical, you know, what's available. Same thing on the diet, you know, what's optimal versus what's practical. Um, and sometimes it's like, what, it, the, the, this is the, the most common um, case, or I don't know about most common, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, optimal would be a high protein, moderate carb, mo moderate fat approach, right? So just generally, you know, balanced, um, you know, macros favored a little bit more heavily towards protein than a typical diet would be, but keep the carbs in, keep the fats in. That's optimal, I think for most people, but sometimes you get people that just don't process carbs well, like they have some GI dysfunction and they just, you know, they need to go with a more ketogenic based approach. Well, I don't find that optimal, but it is for them. And it's also like way more practical for sure. So you need somebody who's feeling good. Um, meal timing, you know, workout timing. This is also like optimal versus practical. What's the most optimal workout timing? Well, you know, you could say it's um, if you're having five meals, maybe after your third meal and before your fourth. So you get three meals to um, really kind of uh, fuel up prime yourself for the workout and then you get two meals post-workout for recovery purposes. It's far enough away from your wake-up time that you're wide awake. It's wide awake. It's far enough away from your bedtime that you'll be able to, you know, come back down from that and sleep really well. That's probably the optimal time. Okay, well, guess what? Not everybody can work out then. What's practical? So don't let optimal get in your way, but be aware of it because also you might say like, okay, well, what elements of that optimal workout time can I steal and borrow from to help fit my more practical needs? And if you know what's optimal, well, getting a lot of meals in before your workout is great. Having some afterwards is good too. Okay, well, more practical, I have to lift in the morning. Okay, well, get that one meal in before you lift. Don't train fasted. There you go. So we've taken what is optimal 
and use that to learn how we can apply that practically if we're not able to hit that optimal situation. That's the smart move. That's the smart way to do it. Um, and the same thing, it applies to training. It applies to everything related to this stuff. Um, you could apply this to cardio. You just have to know what's optimal. Or in uh, the case of a lot of people, just be on the lookout. Do some research so that you're aware of the concept of you know, I'm, learn to ask the question, what is optimal for this setup? I think that's the take-home point here. Like think about asking that question for anything. Um, just because there's so much, so much to be gained from that and just knowing what it is. Like you've got to think to ask the question there and only then can you really make some progress towards, you know, making some intelligent decisions on adjusting your own plan, your own protocol, your own training, your own diet um, to really kind of, you know, make some strides forward. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, let's also talk here real quick about weight fluctuations. So this came in, um, from a client check-in this morning. Um, Madison, thank you for that. She, um, asked, I can't pull the question up. It was on her, her form submission, but, um, let me get, I'm actually going to pull up her tracker and use some data from it here. So, um, cause she was asking like, uh, she, she said, you know, we've been working together for a little over a month and she's, she asked like, what is the deal with, you know, she did her best Seinfeld impression. No, not really. That's me. Um, what, what is the deal with the weight fluctuations? She's like, I've never really, um, uh, I've never tracked my weight on a daily basis before. So, uh, I, you know, seeing all these fluctuations is new to me. What's going on with that? So great question. So, um, just speaking in relative terms here, um, like if I look at the last week's worth of data on her tracker, she starts, I'll eliminate the numbers, but she starts at X for weight. And then relative to that, going from day to day, she's down 0.6 down 1.9, up 2.1, down 2.3, up 2.1, down 0.3, up 0.3. So some pretty big swings in there, right? Um, and so the, the first thing it would be like, okay, well, why are we tracking these numbers? Um, because with all this fluctuation, like, it seems like none of these numbers really mean too much, right? So why are we tracking this stuff? The first thing I would say is, Let's look at, um, you know, if we just checked, uh, let's say we, we looked at, just had her, um, I just had her tra track her weight on Wednesday, right? So um, last Wednesday, she was a certain number. And then this week, she's down 1.8 pounds from that number. Like, oh, okay, cool. That looks like a pretty productive week. Except, you know, that, that number that she is um, down this week, that number was a full 2.1 pounds lower than either day on either side of it. Like that was an anomaly. So we've got a false data point that has no context. So um, weighing yourself daily provides context so that you're not just trying to make decisions on rate of loss based on one data point with no context around it. Like that's the big thing there. Um, the other thing is, you know, what, what is the deal with all this weight fluctuation? Why does it happen? How can we, you know, how can we make it less of a deal, et cetera? One question I ask on check-in forms with my clients every week, I ask them this question, how consistent were you day to day on the little things? Meal timing, workout timing, wake up, bed schedule, that kind of stuff. Because um, I want to know, like, you know, because some people are just locked in where they're like, I wake up at 429 a.m. every day. I then do 28 minutes of cardio, and then I have meal one at 5.16 a.m. every day. Between meal one and meal two, I have 22 and a half ounces of water, blah, blah, throughout the whole day. Like, every day is just fucking robotic as shit, right? 
And in that case, cool. Well, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of fluctuation. Like if all of your days are the same, what you're going to find is that that fluctuation really evens out and this data becomes, you know, a little more meaningful. Um, so if you have a lot of variation, like you wake up at different times, you know, your meal times are different, your meal composition is different, you're eating different stuff, still all within the parameters of the plan, but the stuff changes. Okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It does mean you're going to have more noise in the numbers. So what that question on my check-in form is designed to do is kind of help me figure out what the signal to noise ratio is for the weigh-in data for the week. Like how, how much can we rely on that and how much of that is just kind of junk? Um, because also like if Madison told me like I was a freaking robot all week, I did everything at the same time, had everything, had the same meals at the same time every day, there was no fluctuation, but I'd be like, well, these numbers don't back that up. So something's going on. Like there's something weird. And then we know we need to dig in just a little bit more because that shouldn't be happening. Like, unless there's like digestive inconsistencies, which, you know, isn't something that you necessarily do knowingly. It's like, oh, I got to poop. Okay, cool. There you go. If that doesn't happen, then that number can get backed up, et cetera. Also, Madison is very clearly in a recomp mode right here where the scale isn't moving a whole lot, but we're seeing changes in her photos. Um, you know, measurements are obviously changing as well. So we're not really tracking her rate of loss the same as we would for others. So right now, like that data is less important, but eventually that recomp ends and, you know, that number is just going to start moving and trending down on its own, just given her, her program construction right now. So um, the data will, will help us figure out when that happens. So, but it's that inconsistency and stuff. And I'm talking like everything you do can lead to that. Like you sleep in a little bit, and wake up, wake up later, hop on the scale, you're going to weigh less than if you woke up earlier. Um, if you backload your calories one day, have your meals later, you're going to wake up weighing more the next day. If you front load your calories, eat meals earlier in the day, you're going to wake up less, weighing less the next day. Your water intake fluctuates, your sweat output fluctuates, bowels, as we talked about, being more or less regular, that's going to impact that number as well. Sodium intake, hormone fluctuations. All of these things are going to make that um, that number bounce around. Um, hormone fluctuations typically will cause it to rise or fall a little bit um, over the course of, you know, four to seven days. Not so much like a weird one day dip or spike, um, but still um, the, the things that will cause that will influence that number. And when you combine all of those things, like they're not all going to be rock solid consistent. Right. So um, we should see some fluctuation in those numbers for sure. So some, um, I'd say what Madison was experiencing here and, and what prompted the question was, uh, you know, it was like, yeah, the, the, there are some weird spikes here. That's quite a lot. <laughs> and so she's like, what the hell is going on here? This is weird. Um, but that's it. That's it. It's just like anything that is inconsistent is going to pop up as uh, causing a weight fluctuation. So, um, is that a bad thing? No, it's fine. It's fine. In terms of long-term progress, it impacts nothing. Now, I do always encourage all of my clients in contest prep to be as absolutely rock solid consistent as possible just because I want that data to be clean and clear and devoid of noise simply because we have a tighter schedule that we have to stick to. We're 13 weeks out. We're eight weeks out. I don't want to spend... 10 to 14 days waiting to see some average numbers because things are super inconsistent because then that just forces us to make decisions at, on a slower pace. Right. So it, it's more about maintaining the schedule long-term, like we'll get there, but also, you know, 
with, with contest prep, we aren't looking to just lose weight, tone up, et cetera. Like, no, we're looking to be stage lean on a specific day. And so the target is just much more precise. And so our data needs to be more precise so that we can make intelligent, informed decisions based on what we're seeing there. So, whew, all right. Is that enough? Is that enough? Feels kind of short. What are we, 43 minutes, something like that. Yeah, I got a phone call with my coach here in one minute, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put a stick a fork in this and call it good. But look at this new podcast episode two weeks in a row. Holy crap! Who's this? Who this? I got nothing else, guys. So um, certainly, uh, I, I did not mention this number at the onset. I should have eight six five five one eight six five six nine is the call in number. I will put it in show notes. Thank you, Michelle, for being a rock star here. Tell your friends, share this episode on social media, uh, point people in the direction of this podcast. Trying to grow the audience a little bit. If you want some swag, show off at the gym. Go to thedropset.com. On that page, um, you can see some dropset branded tanks there available. So. Uh, I think I make about a dollar fifty off each one of those. It's not really a, uh, a money making venture. It's more of a spread the news kind of venture. And so, if you just want to show your support in a free way, then certainly just share this episode. Tag me on social media, Instagram at Darren underscore Star. Tell your friends. Leave a review. Leave a rating if your podcast platform allows you to. Always appreciated. So everybody, take care. Be cool. Train hard. Stay healthy.